Still got questions, he's got answers Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway He got problems, he won't solve them But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face Science, faith, and life Welcome to Ask Science Mike. I'm Science Mike. Wait a second. I'm not Science Mike. I'm Dr. Hillary McBride, and I'm guest hosting this week's episode of Ask Science Mike so that we can hear from Mike himself about his book. But to be faithful to the introduction, I'll just continue on. This is a weekly podcast where we believe every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking to Mike, hearing from the man himself about this book, the process of writing, what he's learned along the way, and what he hopes for you to know and experience in reading this work. If I am correct, Mr. Mike McCarg, this is the week that your book is releasing. And so I'm curious, just as we get started, to check in, what, what does it feel like to be releasing this book? What's this like for you? I'm already crying. Oh. <laughs> um, I'm already crying. Thank you for for doing this, Hillary. I'm so grateful to be doing this with you, Mike. Yeah, it means a lot to me. Mm. And um, I was reflecting on how strange it is and wonderful, but very strange that you're interviewing me <laughs> about this book which is mostly a list of things I've learned since I met you. <laughs> yeah, there's something very meta about all of this. It's, a, it's very, very, it's, a, it's definitely a wheel within a wheel kind of thing. Um, it feels so exciting to mm. finally release this book. Uh, there's, you know how this works as a writer. You put your best ideas and your best feelings into a work and you hope that it will be helpful and useful for people. You hope that it will be something that improves someone's life in some way. But then you just like wait a long time after you finish that. I right. can't think of any other media, not even film. Uh, is there such a delay between the completion of the work and when it reaches the audience but then with this like really daunting thing we are in right now with a global pandemic and all of the extra anxiety and all the extra fear and all the extra loss that people are facing, I'm actually really glad the book didn't come out as soon as I was done with it. Mm. Because in a book about how I have learned from others to relate to and accept and understand and value my feelings seems like a good, useful book for a lot of people today. Yeah. I'm so struck with the timeliness of it and, and this unexpected gift of, yeah, the specific timing of this release based on what we're going through. But I, I hear for you <laughs> it, the absurdity of that. You write something, you give it your best, there's this huge push, deadlines, all of the uh, energy and stress around deadlines and then just waiting, 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 waiting. And then here again, this crescendo of feelings around it. That's, uh, that's so unusual. And yet I guess so typical in the book process. 
you almost, by the time a book comes out, forget what it was about. Right. <laughs> yeah. I was really lucky. I recorded the audiobook relatively recently, like much later in the process than I did with Finding God in the Waves. Uh, kind of right before the shelter in place order landed in Los Angeles. And so I got to reread the book out loud in three days and refamiliarize myself with it. And I was, um, this will sound strange to people who haven't uh, really confronted a lot of their shame yet. They might find this statement off-putting. Um, but I was actually struck with uh, an appreciation for the book and how much I liked it and how proud I was right. of it. Um, I was really able, I think I, I have a particular talent for, um, being honest and sincere about what I am thinking and feeling and when I, and communicating that to others. And I think in this book, I hit a different stride mm. in that process of, um, of sharing what I've gone through in a way that hopefully it's applicable to others. I mean, when I write a book, I'm focused on the reader and not on me. But I was also really proud in that um, I felt like I established um, better and more productive boundaries between myself and the reader with this book than I did with Finding God in the Waves. Um, and I, I didn't necessarily notice that as I wrote it. I only noticed it on... Um, reading it in that I wrote this book both as a way to process my own life and my own experiences and as something that could help readers. But somehow this time, those two things didn't get as blurred together as mm. they did in previous works that I've done. And I felt, um, I felt proud of myself as I reflected on that reading in a recording studio. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and yet what's striking to me about that in reading this book is how you are also communicating to the reader so much of the things that you were learning at the time that you were writing it. And so there is this measure of vulnerability, but it sounds to me like a like a healthier relationship to that vulnerability or some way to to transform your learning into this offering for other people without giving away parts of yourself that really were just for you. Yeah, that is the key difference. In Finding God in the Waves, I like I let people into the deepest, darkest, scariest parts of my life. And I, there's glimpses of that here, too. But there, um, at, well, let's let's focus on now. Here, um, as I became aware of a piece of information or a new activity or a new practice and the way it was impacting my life, I took just a moment to... really kind of sit with it and figure out what was mine and what I needed to keep and what I could offer to others without it costing me. So, um, you know, when I finished finding God in the waves, it was kind of like, um, a hangover and wow. a difficult, a difficulty. And when I finished your miracle, I felt really good and really proud. Um, but I didn't feel drained in the same way. Um, these are and these are difficult things to to explain and to articulate, even for me. Um, but I feel like the basic thrust of this book um, comes out of an experience 
you and I shared at the first kin retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, when I realized as much as I thought that I was close and intimate with all of my emotions, I was close and intimate with emotions that I was already comfortable with right. <laughs> and and burying the rest. Uh, and somewhere in the process, that moment, uh, one, led to this book becoming a completely different book than it was before that point. Uh, not a lot made it past that transition point. Just just probably a quarter of the words in the book survived that transition. Mm. Um, but through that, somewhere I, I started learning to not fill my pen from my vein. Wow. Wow. Ooh, what a striking image. And what excites me about that is that that didn't make the book worse. Right. right. <laughs> I used to bleed on the page because I thought that was the only way to write well. Mm. But I actually think, you know, when people have, forget what I think, when others have read this book, they've told me that they, they've had some major insight in their life. And let's be honest, at this point in my life, I think insights are a dime a dozen. But whatever insight they've had is then opened a period of change and growth mm-hmm. um and that's the stuff that really excites me yeah uh I've, I've i've this book represents a shift in my life to a post insight period and into where i value much more the things in our lives that allow us to transform and i don't mean transform in the 90 days to a better you way mm-hmm. which i couldn't be less interested in <laughs> But I mean transforming to love ourselves and others more, um, right. which I think at this point is the only transformation I'm interested in. Well, maybe we'll I'll ask it this way, uh, since we're kind of, you're alluding to it in a few different ways. But from what I know and from what you've said already, the writing of this book really had a kind of unusual trajectory. So can you give us a timeline of the writing of the book and some of the things that happened along the way to shape that? I mean, you already mentioned one of the things that happened, which is a, an experience we had together at a men's retreat. What, what was the trajectory of writing this like and what were some of the twists and turns that happened along the way? You know, I started this book a couple of months after Finding God in the Waves came out. I had this very clear vision for a book that I needed to write since before I wrote Finding God in the Waves, actually. Finding God in the Waves is not the book I wanted to write first. Here's what I knew about myself. That I was kind to other people. Mm-hmm. That I um, had developed a system using science and data analysis to drive behavioral changes in my life that I desired. And I had all these outcomes I was proud of. I had lost a hundred pounds and run a marathon. I had, um, you know, uh, dealt with some hoarding and compulsive behavior patterns in my life successfully. When, when I looked at the literature, the ability to actually make meaningful changes on that is statistically rare. And uh, I'd had a successful career in advertising and then transitioned from that into making much less money, but doing work that fulfilled me and that I I woke up every day with a clear sense of purpose, knowing that today I would make media that would help people feel 
more comfortable, more confident, less afraid, less isolated. That, of course, would be the work I did with the liturgists and then through my own media. And I thought, I know how to do this. I'm going to write a book that's an instruction manual so people can have a life as good as mine. (laughs) (laughs) Bowls. I like it. I like and it. literally, I called a friend and said that was my idea. And my friend Bradley was like, that's a great idea. You should write that book. And so I started putting together a proposal. And I went back and forth with my publisher. And it took some tweaking. And we finally landed on a book uh, called You, Wondrous You. That was a guided tour of the self by you know, a beloved uh, public educator, Mike McArk. And uh, I got really far into writing that book. I decided it was going to be the most cited book ever written. You so decided. I, That's great. I, what a decision I, to make. I know, but I was like, I'm, I don't have a PhD. I don't have any expertise. So what I'll do instead is I will drown people in good referencing. Mm. And so I literally wrote, made a process where first I selected all my source material. It was, I don't remember more than a hundred books and over a thousand uh, pieces of research in addition to a bunch of web material, uh, like uh, pieces in the Atlantic, things like that. Uh, I wrote the citations first. Wow. I I created the notes, (laughs) then an outline, then started to write. And then there would be sentences that had six or seven endnote markers in it. Uh... And it was as riveting as you would expect a book like that to be. Um, And I got really lost trying to write that book and got really discouraged. And then I started to have um, panic attacks Mm. and anxiety. And I'd never had anxiety before. Anxiety is a new feeling for me. I used to, uh, guilt and shame were my go-tos. So kind of I've addressed guilt and shame to a large degree in my life and then anxiety replaced them. And when anxiety replaced them, I started having all these difficult outcomes. And then my wonderful curated life started to come unglued. And um, during that process, as my public platform was growing, you and I hosted an event called Ken. It was a men's retreat that was so exciting because we were helping men understand how uh, masculinity is often used as a tool of the patriarchy, but does not have to be. And we did a sculpt, a psychodrama in that. And during that experience, I had this super intense panic attack, which I now understand to have largely had um, to be a dissociative event. Mm Uh, and I wouldn't have had those words at that time. That is that is something I had to learn through months and months of trauma therapy. Um, but I had a dissociative event because I'd been so triggered that my nervous system uh, just kind of tripped a circuit breaker to try to protect me. Yeah. And when I became aware through learning I had autism, learning I had complex post-traumatic stress disorder, learning all these things, um, my daughter struggling with an eating disorder, being diagnosed, and then us rallying our family around to support her. Ultimately, my codependent relationship with my work leading me to be hospitalized with heart disease. Uh, I became aware that I was not an expert on life who should stand on a pedestal 
and advise others on how to live. <laughs> and the book uh, pivoted into words of comfort from a survivor. Mm. And uh, I found that that place where I believe my work is best. Uh, my favorite thing about Finding God in the Ways, which is arguably a book on theology, is it was written from a perspective of someone who does not believe themselves to be a theologian mm. or qualified to speak on matters of theology. And You're a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass is this deep look at really, really, really modern and nuanced movements in psychology and a really detailed examination of how our neurobiology and our physiology impact our daily lives and um, behavioral economics and these really complicated systems from someone who knows they are not qualified to speak on those things. That's one of my favorite parts about this, Mike, is that there is so much more credibility in you and your humanness being the place that you speak from that I think whether it was intended or not, it gives us, the reader, an opportunity to see how we are like you, both in the places that need attention, but also in our ability to speak with expertise into the things that we have learned and discovered in our own lives in ways that can make us uh, helpful and wise for others without that excluding the places where we have felt pain. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those things are so related. Yeah. Was there more in that trajectory? Does no. that feel like it summarizes it for you? <laughs> no, there's... Um, I saw a review. I have a bad habit of reading the reviews of my mm. books. Everyone mm. says to don't do that. And then and that's good advice, and I ignore it. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> uh, but um, a review came on Amazon from one of the Vine people, and it was a five-star review. And there was a sentence um, in there, and I'm paraphrasing, but it was, uh, Mike McCarg is one fucked up dude. And he knows it, and I love him for it. Mm. And I think there's something to that. I think there have been the periods that have set me up for the most pain and difficulty in life and which have caused the most destruction in my relationships with others are those periods in which I start to believe that I have arrived or mm. I have completed my arc of emotional growth and that I have found a place uh, where I am wise. And I don't mean, I, I believe in many ways I'm a wise person, but I mean in this use of wise that I am a, a fount of wisdom without fault. Hmm. And um, I'm actually really grateful that a couple years of my life uh, shook me of the notion <laughs> that I was, um, you know, some kind of elevated being. Um, because I've been finding... I'm, I was so afraid of myself as a child for so long, for my whole life. Mm. 
to the point it made me uncomfortable with children, to even mm-hmm. be around children. And the process of me writing this book, it led me to understand that these times that I think I am, I've arrived are the times that I think I have defeated and evicted my inner child from my emotional landscape. And um, that came to a particular intense point in the arc of writing this book as Mm -hmm. as I worked through things in trauma therapy. And I went to trauma therapy, understanding that traumatic events were encoded in my brain, and I wanted to decode them. And when I learned these traumatic events were in many ways a, a, a neurological snapshot of myself in the past, in my case as a child, I said, oh, great, we just got have, we have to get that kid out of there. Right. And I remember my therapist, a man named Ron Frederick, um, who's been a guest on this program, uh saying with such kindness in his eyes, no, Mike, we don't evict the child. Mm. You learn to protect him. Mm-hmm. And even saying that now brings mm. tears to my eyes because that moment of insight was not the moment that I began to learn to do that. It was yeah. the moment I began to face the reality of what was ahead. Uh, and somewhere very near the end of writing this book, um, I saw a picture of myself as a child, and I was filled with such affection and pride oh, wow. yeah. for all that that little boy survived, mm. and that despite all I went through as a kid, I am still so kind, and I care for other people, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I was so proud that the little child in that photograph was able to do that. And I found that after that, when I would look at my adult self in the mirror, the sense of constant self-consciousness I usually feel was not there. And I also found the next time I interacted with a child, I enjoyed it. (laughs) Wow. What integration took place for you to be able to see the continuity in self and that you could love that young part of you and see that you are today an extension of that young part of you. That's exquisite. I would want that for all of us. Mm. Mm. Me too. Yeah. Me too. Wow. There's something so striking for me about this book, and I've already mentioned it, but it's the way that you are moving your learning in real time into something you share with us. And there's a, I don't know how to explain it except to say that there's a kind of quality of the writing, which feels like it has this this pace or energy to it that's different than someone who's like, oh, here's a lesson I learned 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's almost like as you are learning, as you write this book, we get to learn along with you. And there's some sort of energetic pull to the parts of us that feel stuck to join you in that transformation. And I don't know if that's a a quality that's possible to capture if you write a book any other way. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, uh, to ask you about your author's note at the beginning. I have some very specific questions about this book for you, Mr. McCart. Okay, Okay, let's do it. (laughs) In the author's note, you mentioned the following and I'll, if it's all right with you, I'll read your words to you. Yes, please. This is a dangerous book. 
The process of researching and applying its insights from psychology and sociology to neuroscience and behavioral economics. Sorry, Greg. From psychology and sociology to neuroscience and behavioral economics changed my life in dramatic and unexpected ways. There has been pain, struggle, and loss. In the pages that follow, I'm going to be honest and open about what I've learned in the hope that it might help anyone else who's fighting to emerge from their own cocoon. So what I was struck by in reading this was the tension that's there, that there's this danger in knowing that things that you're writing about could elicit something for someone, but also wanting to offer them to them at the same time, implying that somehow this thing that is dangerous is also helpful. So I'm curious if you could tell us just about that tension and healing, the knowing ourselves, the emerging, the transformation, about that, that razor's edge where, where it is dangerous, but also something that you want for us. One thing about me that I know is that I care very much about empowering people to make their own choices, that I have been trusted by so many uh, to be a guide and advisor in their life, and that I've never wanted to follow the example of people in media or the public eye who abuse or manipulate that trust. And I made a decision very early when I realized where this book was going. Uh, The entire book was written in order, by the way. I had the Mm -hmm. great, great fortune of a computer crash that erased the manuscript, and I had to start from scratch late in the process, uh, bringing out from memory what I had written before, which ended up making the book so much better because the the manuscript had gotten too heavy. The last thing I wrote, however, was the author's note. And I wrote it because um, I would rather someone pick my book up, read the line and say, this is a dangerous book, and read that paragraph and go, oh, not ready, and put it back, Mm -hmm. and me not get whatever my author royalty is for that copy, than for someone to start reading this and to enter a process they are not prepared to enter. If I would have read this book when I was... 24 it would have been very difficult Hmm. we have all faced challenges in life that are significant and we are an incredible thing known as life and my understanding is that life created bodies first to be successful and then added brains to make bodies more successful. Bodies are a tool of the brain. And because bodies and brains are designed to survive, they're designed to store and process experiences about the world that help them survive. And I know this sounds very heady right now, folks, (laughs) but this will go to the heart. Because of that, I don't care who you are, your body and your brain have stored experiences of pain in an attempt to help you survive. And most contemporary cultures do a bad job of offering us the kinds of tools that help us process and cope with those experiences in real time. So instead, we tend to take on perhaps what I'd call a personal emotional deficit. We do deficit emotional spending. Mm. 
and sooner or later the bill comes due. So there's two things we can do. We can enter into a process volitionally and begin to process those things. And in the process, we will experience some more pain and suffering because our bodies, in order to to fully process what we understand today medically and psychologically, is in order to fully process those repressed experiences, we will have to experience pain and suffering again. Or we can push that process off into the future and in doing so pay more interest. And I wanted to equip the reader in the author's note to make the decision, is this the time when you're ready to start facing those things or not? Because it's your choice. But I also understand by looking at outcome data from studies, um, both in mental health and and uh, the medical field, is if you push these things off forever hmm. and you live long enough, the reckoning is all the worse for the delay. So I think there is some wisdom in being aware when we have the resiliency for a process like this and when we do not, but also to begin to understand that our bodies and our brains will start giving us warning signs when we're going to start to face some of our, our repressed things. And if you start seeing those things, things like panic attacks, things like chronic anxiety, things like disrupted sleep patterns, uh, if you heed those signals and respond, it's difficult, but you can, you can move toward a place that is ultimately, um, oh gosh, this is so hard to mm. articulate into language. Mm. <laughs> You're doing so great. Um, you can move into a place where you feel more well. And I, I, I was careful not to say more happy, you feel better, mm. you feel no pain. Nope, none of those are true. Right. But you feel more well. And as you feel more well, are able to relate more intimately with others. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and I've seen what happens when people don't face that. Um, when we don't face those things, we have heart attacks, we have strokes, we have late in life suicides, we have public health crises. And what I would tell someone who heard that that warning about a dangerous book is that yesterday um, I came out of my office and I was aware that there was so much tension in the kitchen with Jenny and Madison and Macy. And I knew not because I am a genius, but because I've been through trauma therapy that they were all feeling feelings that they weren't aware of and couldn't name. And in their anxiety, were experiencing conflict. And I asked and did not mandate if we could all take a moment just to share what we were feeling. And then everyone said that they felt like and then explained a circumstance. And I said, you know, when I've talked to my therapist, that he says, anytime I say I feel like I'm sharing a thought and I'm Mm. thankful to hear your thoughts, but could I hear your feelings? And then one, two, three, three people told me they felt fine. Mm. And I said, I'm going to check the great book of feelings here. I don't see fine listed. Persistent. Uh, so I would love it if, uh, and no one has to do this. This is an invitation. If you can tell me a feeling, and then one, two, three, I don't know what I'm feeling. And so then I asked if people could describe what they felt in their bodies. And they said, What do you mean? I feel nothing. I said, Well, check your forehead and your cheeks and your neck and your shoulders and your back and your chest and your belly. 
for warmth or cold or tightness or looseness or something coiled or something tingling. And then finally I said, and if you can't find anything there, check your eyes. And when I said, check your eyes, one of my daughters started to cry. Mm. And I could see that she felt um, shame and embarrassment at crying. And so I walked up to her and I put my arms around her. And I said, thank you for sharing your feelings with me. I feel so safe and connected with you when you share your feelings with me. And then my other daughter and my wife, we came and we surrounded uh, this person and we all cried together and it was wonderful. Mm. Because after that, we realized together that we are all sad and afraid at what is happening in the world and trapped in a house together. Mm. And then we just sat in that clarity for a few minutes and if, and then... Uh, I was so excited, I didn't raise this. One of my daughters said, could we talk about strategies on how to keep this communication open? And can we talk about strategies on how to reduce the stress we have living together? And then we sat at the table as a family and openly discussed strategies to, one, communicate when we need support, and two, to make it less frustrating to be in a house together for months. And all of that was facilitated by a journey into appreciation, acceptance, and even affection for all of our feelings, not just joy, not just excitement or surprise, not but also sadness and also anger and also fear. Mm. And that process is difficult for everyone. Me and my family are all still in that process, and I believe perhaps will always be in that process. But I just would I would just say I don't know what other people's home life is like, but that was a different experience than I would have had with my family 3 years ago in the same situation. A marker of all of the transformation that's taken place in you since then. That's an incredible story, Mike, just just to demonstrate that it's dangerous because we're confronting old things and changing and upsetting a system, but we want it because, or we want it for each other, or you want it for us because it takes us somewhere healthier, richer, Mm -hmm. more present, more connected, which we could argue is really um, maybe one of the things that makes being alive worth living. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when we were starting to become friends, I pulled this up just in preparing for this interview. I was I, I was texting you about something, I think messaging somehow, and uh, I sent you a text that said, I, I quote, I wanted to tell you that all last week you were showing up in my clinical work. I've been recommending your book, Finding God in the Waves, to lots of people I'm seeing, and I keep hearing about how healing it is for them. It's like a key to unlocking some stuck shame, it seems, that your story has been a lighthouse for them. Thank you for your sharing. Thank you for sharing your voice, your knowings, all of it. As someone who has also had a fairly personal first book coming out this fall, what did I say? As someone who also has a fairly personal first book coming out this fall, I appreciate more than ever the courage that takes to publicly be naked and emotionally and intellectually yourself in front of others. Mm. And you sent the following message back. There was a post-it note on my desk as I wrote this book, and it said, "Kill the shame." I'm so happy that subtext is connecting with people. It was the animating energy of the work. 
So this exchange that we had years ago now had got me thinking that maybe there wasn't a post-it note by your desk, or maybe there was, but I'm wondering if there was a heartbeat or a phrase or something that stands out to you that guided how and what you wrote. What is that? Can you share with us what you would want, what, what was maybe the animating energy or force or language as you were writing this? Thanks for sharing that story with me. I had oh. forgotten about those messages. Mm. Um, there was an animating energy behind um, this book. Uh, gosh, this is hard to say. <laughs> mm. If you love yourself, they may love themselves. Yeah. And uh, it was written down. Mm. And it was, um, some days I love myself so deeply and so profoundly. And other days, the defensive strategies that helped me survive a lifetime of incredible trauma roar back into being and they take over and they win for that day and I just can't stand myself. And on those days, if I write from that mindset, I either have to put on a false bravado and pretend that I'm great <laughs> hmm. um, or I write things that are so self-critical that they're not only not helpful to read, they're painful. For others to read. And so when I would sit down to write, I would uh, I would think about what I like about myself. You know, if, if people listen to me often, they're probably aware, I say, I'm kind very often, because that's an easy grounding statement that I don't question. Mm -hmm. It's easy for me to believe that I am kind to people. I have lots of evidence internally and externally to support the fact that I am kind. Um, but I can't write a book to people about encouraging them to love themselves if I'm not taking that medicine myself. Mm. And in the cultural context in which we live, where self-love and acceptance is so often grotesquely conflated with narcissism, I actually believe that People loving and accepting themselves is the foundation for genuine and sincere friendship and for actual social change. When I don't love myself and I am a white man and someone speaks of patriarchy or white supremacy or ableism or heterosexism, then I feel a profound insecurity because these are reasons I should not love myself. These are, these are confirmations that I'm a bad person, which is my deepest fear. But when I love myself, then I know that there are societal systems that I am a part of that I did not create, but at times I have helped maintain. 
And so if I love myself, then I can love others, and I can be present with them in their pain, and I can listen, and I can decenter myself, and I can substantively change in response to their critique of a system that may overlap with my own behaviors. Mm. But if I love myself, then I don't feel attacked or destroyed by those statements. Quite the contrary. I feel excitement that I've been given the opportunity to be the person I know myself to be. When I love myself, and a person shares with me who is a friend their pain, whether it is systemic or personal or both, I am able to sit with them in their pain and not need to rush in and solve their problem and advise them and be their savior, nor do I have to withdraw in fear because they have provoked pain in my own life because when I love myself, I'm in touch with my pain and I'm processing my pain and I know when I have the space and energy to be supportive and when I need to set a boundary and say, could we talk another time? I've been so struck Honestly, by knowing you, Hillary, um, what love, true love of the self does to facilitate true love for other people, I think so often in our culture, we have confused and conflated codependency and flattery with love. And the animating energy of this book is true, sincere, and genuine love for the self, which leads to the same love for others. Mm. Wow. Whew. I don't. Uh, I don't really know what to say to that, except in listening to you say those words and feeling your pause before you shared them. There was such a deep resonance for me with, with what you shared just now and how I experienced reading the book and experienced myself reading the book. I, you did that, Mike. Mm. That came through in how you wrote, what you wrote, and what it did to us as the reader. And that that kind of references what I was saying before, too, about how there's something unique about writing writing a book as you're learning things instead of it being something old you've known for a while and you're finally getting around to distributing. And to me, it is so obvious that as you've led us into your process of transformation and healing, that it invites us into the same, that there is something contagious about the learning and the growing process. And I've heard it said a few other ways, but like there's no such thing as one-way liberation that mm-hmm. there is no such thing as me actually disconnected from you and and total individualism and that that comes through to me in this book that as you have done healing work so that wakens something us and up wakens mm-hmm. something in us up as we read this book mm-hmm. what was the pause before you shared it before you shared that that phrase Um, there was some sadness there. Mm. Um, my empathy sometimes makes me hyper aware of all the things people feel. Mm. And, um, 
the combination of my friendships and my my work in media means I get up an interesting and sometimes terrifying bird's eye view of how people feel day to day in their lives and the magnitude and the difference of my aspiration for how folks would feel for themselves and how they actually feel so there was sadness there and then there was a shame that I had to push back on Mm. because um, I was aware that um, people are trained at a societal institutional scale not to accept the idea that they should love themselves Mm. Um, and because of that some people would have a a reflexive reaction to such a notion. They say, wait, wait, is Science Mike uh, a hippie now? Is he a <laughs> whatever? <laughs> and I, I I, had that shame and that fear of disconnection. And then, uh, so I kind of went through two full emotional waves. Wow. And then I sat and waited for the sense of clarity on how to open my heart the most to the most people while uh-huh. still uh, protecting myself. <laughs> Wow. It's quite a quite a pause. <laughs> oh, but gosh, what modeling for us? What modeling to demonstrate all of those things that could take hap- take place in that span of time, and that you could be so uh, with yourself, and that being with yourself in that way and taking the time to do that could lead you to some clarity. I mean, that's you demonstrating one of the things that you learned in this book too around staying with your emotion, being with what's happening in the moment and that it takes you somewhere good on the other side. I became aware of people in my life who spoke more slowly and I didn't know why for a long time. The people would stop and reflect before they spoke. I'd be like, what are they doing? Why, you know, I have such high verbal acuity, I can begin to speak instantly if I wish. And I noticed often that people who said really wise or kind things, they took all this time before they spoke. Um, and I think I started, in as I wrote this book and the journey I've been on, to understand why they are quiet before they speak. That the parts of our brains and our bodies that can speak instantly often are the least prepared to offer something of value or substance. <laughs> huh. uh, and if we give those those um, older and more ancient parts of our physiology the time to do their work, often they better equip us to genuinely share something of value and to, to respond to what is happening around us instead of being so reactive. Thank you for modeling that for us in that moment. That was really moving to me. And it said to me, what you're about to say is important. That pause made me lean in and tune in and wait with great expectancy about whatever you were going to say next. Thank you for, for being with yourself so that we could get to know what was happening as you were writing this book. And then for sharing that, that pause with us. This has been part one of Hillary McBride's interview of Science Mike about his new book, You Were a Miracle and a Pain in the Ass. This interview has been broken into two parts. You can download and listen to the second half tomorrow.